Hey guys, Bill here. Welcome back to another episode of the Bill Barnwell Show, presented by DraftKings, America's top-rated sportsbook app. In a moment, we're going to talk with Dominique Foxworth, yes, Dominique Foxworth of ESPN, about Carson Wentz's struggles and all about the Jets' late-game scenario. You figure a former NFL cornerback has a lot to say about what would happen in that situation, and Dominique does have a lot of insight into what happened with the Jets. But first, before we get into this episode, I want to remind you guys about a podcast that features a friend of not just me, but also Dominique. It's our friend Mina Kimes and the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny. Lenny's my friend. Lenny's not Dominique's friend, to be clear. Mina talks all things football every week with her unique brand of insight and humor. So go download and subscribe to the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny and, of course, the Bill Barnwell show as well on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we'll get back to our show here in a moment, but first... This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there is no competition. And right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number 8, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a Jets Pizza location near you. Again, try Jets Signature 8-Corner Pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's number 8, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. And now here's Dominique, and here's our show. Hey. Good just to hear him breathing. Recognized his breath. That's how famous Dominique Foxworth is. This is outrageous. Um, I've never had a a Zoom conference that was just through the phone. That's so weird. It's crazy. The things they're doing with technology these days. I mean, but why Zoom if we're not going to look at each other? Why not use because whatever this, people use before Zoom? Because this is a podcast. Uh, before Zoom, we actually had our devices that we plugged into hardwired internet. And that requires people to be at the... Uh, at ESPN's campus to record it. Gotcha. Oh, okay. Mm, Interesting. Interesting. That was the most sarcastic, interesting, I think I've ever heard. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was meant to be. I'm glad you picked up on it. It wasn't interesting at all. I'm very attentive. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, I didn't have anything funny to say on the heels of I'm very attentive because you are. And so we'll just let that die there. Maybe talk about football. Wasn't a bit. I know. Why are we doing this if we're not doing bits? The whole reason to have a podcast is to bit it up. I'm saving the bits for the podcast. This is not part of the podcast. This is just us talking like human beings before the podcast. So you just dive right in. You don't need a little bit for play. I personally need to warm up my bit. <laughs> well, this is going to get not HR friendly very quickly. Let's just move <laughs> on and start the show. Okay. Uh, make sure that's all part of the show. We got to get the bit, bit foreplay in the show. Again. <laughs> all right. As promised, joining me on the Bill Barnwell Show, I would not say a frequent contributor. Too important to be a frequent contributor. I would say a regular contributor to the Bill Barnwell Show. Oh, man. You what? butter up all your guests, and it makes you feel less valuable when I hear it from you because i know that you just say that for everybody you're not going to start a podcast like hey this low life loser who doesn't do much like i would rather you just be honest so it doesn't it will feel more like a real compliment a man who i just watched drop an interception in the afc championship game 
<laughs> oh man, yeah, that was a rough one. I threw a corner route. I had that thing perfectly covered. Had it in my hands, dropped it, and we lost had that it, game. Had awesome. it in his hands for like five seconds. Might be a catch. So then it's not a drop. You got it in your hand for five seconds, not a drop. It's a bad call. We didn't have replay back then. So I'm with you. Let's stick with it. It was a missed call by the referee. A man who just admitted he dropped a key interception. <laughs> As a rookie. It wasn't Good. a key interception. It was on the first drive of the game. Key, Phil, nothing key Phil happened since, until the fourth quarter. Where did that dropped interception happen, Dominique Foxworth? Um, it happened just outside the end zone. I don't know north or south, but it, it was happened. the opposite end of... Um, Oh, you're talking about where? In the, it, the happened. Field of where I mean, it happened in Denver, the corner. Colorado. It happened inside the end zone. It would have been a momentum-shifting, game-changing interception with the Broncos, the rest of Dominique Foxworth's teammates, heartbroken that their rookie cornerback couldn't catch, apparently. Uh, Blew the game. We would have lost anyway. We were out <laughs> close. We would have lost anyway. <laughs> That's what uh, we're they talking had a about. perfect scheme devised. They had a perfect scheme devised for our max pressure scheme. Um, the, the Patriots, the week prior, so we would the whole season we would do all out blitzes, like a blitz bluff situation. We line up like in punt block, essentially on third down, and everyone would blitz except for like the coverage guys would play zero. And and then on some third downs we would do that. On other third downs we would do a bluff where everyone would line up like that. Then we drop into a cover three, and it was killing people all year. A lot of pressure on the corners. Me and Champ Bailey had to lock them down all season. A lot of pressure on the corners. So the week prior, no one could really figure out what to do with it because you could either throw a quick route or you could go deep, and we could cover all those things because you only had like a second to throw it. The week prior, we played the Patriots, and the Patriots figured out how to beat it, but they didn't have a player that could beat it. So the way that they beat it was they would put a receiver in motion, and that receiver – the person who was covering him would run with them. And then that receiver would block the end man on a line of scrimmage. That way you get a two for one. That person is blocking someone and they have a cover person. So then you have enough people to pick up the blitz. But the person who was doing it was, I don't know, maybe it was Troy Brown or somebody. He wasn't it was big or strong enough to get it done. Yeah. So we still won that game. Um, and then the next week, the Steelers did the same thing, but they had Heinz Ward. Mm. And he was the probably the only receiver in the league that was like capable of blocking a blitzing John Lynch or a blitzing Al Wilson and also be a respectable receiver. So that's what beat us. So they would do that. And the benefit of max pressure is you only have to cover for a second because they don't have enough people to block you. Mm -hmm. But then they could run all their routes. So no one was running comebacks on us, digs. People were running hitches, slants, goes posts all those things and we were covering them quite well then they did that then they did that which opened up the entire route tree and they started running comebacks and all types of stuff and they were killing us now long explanation for something no one else cares about yeah you got now you guys might think hey it's cool to have friends who played in the nfl it's embarrassing this is all that happens just 10, <laughs> 10 minute stories i don't care about about things from the past we just want to make fun of someone for not catching quote unquote for the You're young welcome. people for the young people december 2nd heinz ward was nasty like a LB that could catch. So to your point, Dominique Foxworth, Heinz Ward, yep. unique set of skills. Now, I don't want to talk about that game where you dropped an interception and a key moment anymore. I was trying to be nice, just I trying dropped, to I dropped my two. I dropped, I dropped two in a game against Tom Brady. It was regular season now, but we still won. Well, very exciting story. Um, 
you actually brought up a topic I wanted to bring up with you. You talked about zero blitzing. And I don't know if you heard, but on Sunday, New York Jets sent a zero blitz with like five seconds left and gave up a game-winning touchdown. And so I have seen a lot of discourse about this play. Um, I have seen former NFL players who should know better talking about how it was a uh, a attempt by Greg Williams to tank and ruin Adam Gase's reputation as if it were in opposite of tatters. So I said, you know what? I know an NFL cornerback and I can get him to stop talking about his, uh, his career for a few minutes to talk about what happened on this play. So Dominique Foxworth, I want to talk to you about this Jets play. Can, are you willing to do that with me? Absolutely. Okay. So let me set the scene for those of you who for some reason, did not watch the Jets and the Raiders on Sunday. It is like, sec- it's third down because the Raiders, uh, the Raiders spiked on first down, threw a bomb to an open receiver on second down, but Derek Carr missed the throw. So it's third down. There are 13 seconds left. Play ended with five seconds left. 13 seconds left from the Jets' 46-yard line. The Raiders are down tw- 28 to 24. Need a touchdown. Greg Williams dials up a zero blitz. He sends seven guys. He has an eighth defender who was assigned to the running back, who then uh, was basically left blitzing as a green dog after the fact. Didn't really get home, though. Kind of just stayed in the, the, the no man's land, I suppose. Three defensive backs up against three receivers. Henry Ruggs runs a double move, beats not that Lamar Jackson, that's his new nickname, for a game-winning touchdown. Dominic Foxworth, what was Greg Williams thinking? Um, when people prepare for those late game situations, they do not prepare for a max blitz. Mm-hmm. I do not think that Greg Williams' call was stupid. I think the thing about it that was the problem is that he had done it repeatedly, so they could have been prepared for it, and the green dog that you brought up. So the reason why this all ties in, which I wasn't sure – that it mattered, but that story I told in the beginning was instructive because I mentioned we lined up in punt block. Like everyone was on the line of scrimmage except for the people who were covering receivers. Even the person who was covering a tight end would be on the line of scrimmage. The person who was covering the backs was on the line of scrimmage. We were not looking to disguise our blitz. We told you, we, you know what's going to happen. And you have until it takes the one unblocked man to get to the quarterback, mm-hmm. that's how much time you have to throw. So the green dog situation, the add-on blitz guy is trying to disguise unnecessarily when everyone knows that it's a zero blitz and he gets stuck in no man's land. They have enough people to protect because he's coming from so far away. That was the real problem in the Greg Williams situation. It's like, I'm fine with saying, all right, you're going to have one second to throw or however long it takes us to get there. We're blitzing. The problem was they didn't blitz and they didn't cover it. They did neither. And the point I made at the beginning is when you're playing zero as a corner, you're like, look, I, there are only a couple routes they can run mm-hmm. because they should only have a certain amount of time. But they gave them the entire route tree mm-hmm. <laughs> without pressuring them. So that was the real problem in it. And also that you just kept doing it. Like teams, the benefit of it is it surprises people. They're like, all right, we're in a last second situation. They're going to rush two or three and everyone mm-hmm. drop back. And then you don't and you should crush them. It works normally. So I think those were more the issues than it was just the idea that you would zero blitz in that situation. Like, I don't think that's as stupid as most people do. I understand it's a, it's a higher risk strategy, but 
and I probably wouldn't do it as a defensive coordinator. But as a corner in that situation, I'm not mad. I'm only mad if I'm Lamar Jackson in that situation, the other Lamar Jackson, that you leave me out there and cover zero, but you also don't get home on a max blitz. Like, mm-hmm. you can't ask me to do both. Okay, so Lamar Jackson, let's start with him. This is an undrafted free agent from Nebraska. He is up against right. Henry Ruggs, maybe the best receiver in college football a year ago. Right. Two questions for you. Number one, is it naive, even if you're going to send a zero blitz, to have a undrafted corner as you know up against one of the fastest and most impressive rookie receivers in the game from Greg Williams' perspective? And then number two, was Lamar Jackson wrong to bite on the route that Henry he thought Henry Ruggs was running before he yes. turned up field. So I'll take number two first. Yes. Mainly because it was an inside fake, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. If it's an outside fake, fake, I understand because 13 seconds, that's enough to catch the ball and get out of bounds. The inside fake is like, no, catch it and I'll tackle you. That biting on that is a problem. Having him covering him in that situation, also probably not great. Uh, I feel like I heard someone say that it was Bomani Jones actually said that Lamar Jackson ran a four six that is like that's like you can't play corner at that speed <laughs> it just doesn't feel like something that you can do let alone um guard henry ruggs who ran a four two if i remember correctly so uh, those are huge issues however i will point out that zero is very scary a zero blitz sounds scary as far as mm-hmm. coverage concerned but when you're playing cover one and the safety's in the middle Unless it's Ed Reed, like most times the safety is not going to be able to help you on a go route. Like mm-hmm. most safeties can't, can't get there quickly enough. If it's cover three, then you are alone in deep responsibility. So mm-hmm. I personally would rather be in zero as a corner. I'd rather be in zero with the pressure getting home than be in cover one. Uh, with uh, as much time as you, with the quarterback having as much time as possible. Cause like the middle of the field safety is going to help you on a post. That's mm-hmm. it. Like he's not going to get a dig. He's not going to get a comeback. He's not going to get a go. He's not going to get out. He's not going to get a slant. He can help you on a post. That's just about, that's all you can rely on him to do. So mm-hmm. uh, it's a tough spot for Lamar Jackson, no matter what. And I guess if you're in cover three, you understand that you have more help underneath. So mm-hmm. you're less likely to break on that inside breaking route but uh the the go route is not much different in in zero as than it would be in one do you think situationally given that there are there was such little time left and given that there was you know there was i guess a theoretical chance they they throw it in breaking route but it didn't seem very likely given yeah. that there might not be enough time to spike it and get another play up um did you do you, like, do you think that your mind changes in that moment at the NFL level? All I heard was when you said situationally, I thought about Usher. Situations will arise. Anyway, um, at that moment, I think you're right. Like 13 seconds, I understand you play sidelines and deep. That's the challenging thing about that situation. When they have no timeouts, I understand what you have to do. But oftentimes you'll end up with a one-on-one jump ball because if you think about it you have to cover the sideline because if they get out of bounds then there's enough time for another play and you obviously have to cover the end zone so the guys who are protecting the sideline they're late help if anything on a deep ball Mm -hmm. so i think the the coaching should have been um all right you are going to zero blitz if you are blitzing the quarterback get on the line of scrimmage 
blitz the quarterback. If you have a attached tight end or a running back in the back of, in the backfield, get on the line of scrimmage. If you are a cornerback or a coverage player in this situation, at the snap of the ball, if they don't throw it immediately, get depth. And if they catch it and go out of bounds, that's one for them. And don't let them, if they catch it and go inside, tackle them, game's over. So I think that's the, those are the coaching points that they probably didn't practice and they didn't understand. The thing I hate, the, the zero blitzes that I hate are the ones that come from depth. Those so rarely work because you still give them the same amount of time. So I think there were, I probably in that situation and most people in that situation, I think rightfully would call uh, um, victory sideline or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know what different teams call it, but it's victory formation, but be aware of the sidelines and you have to have someone low, medium and high to cover the sideline. And then you have three safeties across the back to cover the deep. Like that is the conventional thing to do in that situation. But in that situation, you're rushing three people, sometimes two people, and you give the quarterback a lot of time to move around and um, and buy uh, some more time. And you also end up with a one-on-one jump ball in the end zone, which you may not feel comfortable about. But I think probability suggests that's the, the safer thing to do. I don't think probability entered into Greg Williams' mind here, if I'm being honest with you. Oh, yeah. I'll, t- I'll tell you what. I mean, I'm, talk- I'm talking to you, so I use words like probability. Probably. Oh, yeah. Oh, stop. Nonsense. Can I tell you what happened earlier in the game on the prior drive and on the, on the play before? Oh, I already know. You already know. I already know. I follow, I follow Bill Barnwell. I know what happened. I, I assume you have me muted, though. So <laughs> okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reiterate it for the listeners of this podcast, do I have blocked in some cases anyway. So on the prior drive, fourth and eight, they sent, I think, a, a six-man pressure at five guys in man coverage across the field against empty Marcus May was matched up one-on-one against Darren Waller, who was in the middle of a 200-yard game and was called for holding. After the game, Marcus May uh, kind of criticized Greg Williams, which I don't blame him for that situation. I think that was a – I think leaving your, you know, your free safety one-on-one against a guy who is torching you the entirety of the game with a free release and the entirety of the middle of the field to work with is not the call I would make in that situation. So they get down to the nine-yard line, fourth and three, Derek Carr throws a touchdown pass to Hunter Renfro that is called back for uh, offsetting holding penalties. The Jets rushed four in that situation, drops seven into coverage. Carr still found somebody anyway. The ensuing fourth down, they run the play again. Greg Williams sends a big blitz. It's, of course, in the short red zone, so it is you know much less space to work with. Um, Derek Carr makes a panic throw. It is incomplete. The Jets gets off the field. So big blitz works. On the final drive, Second down after the spike, Jets rush four. Nelson Aguilar, I don't know how this happened, somehow still gets open deep for the game-winning touchdown. And Derek Carr misses the throw. Final play happens. Zero blitz. Touchdown. Jets lose. Greg Williams gets fired. Do you think, under the circumstances, that makes the call more defensible? Does it make it more predictable, you think? like did Do you think that John Gruden kind of thought, okay, he just rushed for it didn't work now they're going to send a big blitz and we're going to capitalize off that big blitz yeah i don't think john gruden anticipated the big blitz coming i think knowing greg williams it's possible that you can anticipate it mm-hmm. but i don't think i don't even need that background to make the call defensible i think the call is defensible the results stink but I think the call is defensible. Like I, I just went through all the reasons why as a corner, I'd be comfortable in that situation with mm-hmm. that. 
Um, but I think that does make it more defensible when you follow the, the, those plays and how it's like, this isn't working. That isn't working. Let's try this. We have some success here. Like you're trying anything in that, in that situation because you don't have the talent that you necessarily need. And I respect that. And I understand that. I am not one who wants to defend Greg with three G's in any circumstance, but like, I understand how he got to that conclusion and him being fired. It's hard to say it's unfair because like everyone there is going to be fired. Yeah. Probably he, he just got a little early head start on his vacation, which is <laughs> fine, but it does feel odd to fire him when their defense, I think by EPA is 26 and their offense is 32nd. Mm-hmm. So if you're, trying to say that you're firing people based on their results, then that's problematic. I think what, what happened is May's comments and probably what was happening in the locker room is like the guys decided that that was bad. And, and it, you, it's hard to get your team back from that point. If they're, if they're trash talking a coach, a coordinator in the locker room after the game and, and in the media, it's hard to bring a, back, a guy back in that situation. I mean, imagine how bad the Jets would be if they didn't respect their coaching staff. That's the uh, that's what's led them to all their success so far this year is just healthy appreciation for the talents of Greg The thing I don't understand is just like you guys hired Greg Williams. What were like? I, this is not like a new thing. It's not like this was you know uh, who's the Colts defensive coordinator? Matt Eberflus. Like if Matt Eberflus sent a like eight man blitz with the game on the line, I'd be like, wow, that was not what I was expecting from him. You hired like this aggro, hyper blitzing, like faux bounty gates. <laughs> bounty gate, like it sums right. it all up. He's paying for injuries, like that's very right. good. You hired that dude, so like, why are like I understand disappointment, I understand being frustrated by what happened, but like you hired that dude. What were you expecting him to do? I mean, it's an emotional reaction. It's clear that they don't have much of a process there or a, a, a process that yields results. So I'm not surprised that they would make some sort of emotional reaction, but in those situations, like whatever, he, he get an early start on vacation. Greg Williams wasn't going to be their defensive coordinator and even flutes. You're right. They're not blitzing anybody. They're playing zone. I remember the playoff was it two years ago when they ran cover three with um, Darius Leonard mm-hmm. as the outside third player. Like that stood out in my mind as, as boring as Eberflus's defense looks, they do some inventive things that I haven't seen very often. And I guess you have to have the athletes that, like Darius Leonard to, I think he got an interception on that play too, because they, they tricked um, Deshaun Watson into mm-hmm. believing it was man coverage because Leonard motioned out to, and he ended up playing third. It's pretty incredible. We're going to edit that part out because I don't want to, you're, you're just doing this to hype up your feature on Darius Leonard, which it's not that time. Oh, that was a long not time that, ago. Not that part of the show yet. Not not time for plugs yet. <laughs> I don't read that feature. If you're going to read a feature, read the one at Honey Badger. You just had two picks, thanks to me. <laughs> you sending him your reads? You're sending him your uh, your insight into the uh, who did they play this week? I don't remember who they played this week. Uh, the Broncos. Yeah, uh, you're going to tell, tell him how to defend Drew Locke. I mean, it's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. Someone's got to do it. Um, so let's get to the the tanking element here. Now, from what I gather, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think you see this move as a as indicative of tanking that the Jets were deliberately trying to lose. Is that fair to say? Uh, yes. So when it comes to the tanking discussion in the NFL, you've talked about this a bunch. 
um, on the 27 television shows and other radio appearances <laughs> you do. Can you give me your thoughts on whether tanking in the NFL works and whether it's something teams should actually try to do? I don't think it works. Mm-hmm. I also hate it, so I'm biased. I am predisposed to think to believe that it doesn't work. But I am one who believes that, like the old um, business adage that culture eats strategy for breakfast, like that mm-hmm. nonsense, like I believe that. And I think culture matters. And especially in a, uh, on a football team where the team is big and everyone is kind of siloed in their own little um, position groups. Mm-hmm. The culture that you set matters because you have to, you're dependent on everyone and players are making decisions without you around and coaches are making decisions when people aren't watching them. And those decisions often um, have an impact on the outcome of the game. And by that, I mean, in, uh, in Baltimore, we would have DB meetings once a week at my house to watch film all the DBs. That was a culture thing that was set there. And uh, it was something they did before I got there. I started hosting them when I got there, but it's just a culture thing. It's about the culture is the like accepted behaviors and activities, like the things that are accepted and expected of you when you're a part of a family organization or whatever. I think that matters so much in football. And I believe that it is impossible to build a culture where people are bought in, where people believe in the game plan, where people are committed to studying it, where people are prepared. Uh, another thing that happened a lot in Baltimore was when we would watch film, we'd come into our coaches and say, I saw this, let's do this. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, can you imagine having 53 minds looking at coming up with a game plan rather than just the coaches? And that that's the type of things that come out of having a good winning culture. And you can't build that in an organization when you send the message to the players we don't care what happens this year or not, not, we don't care. We want to lose Like those habits and that culture is built over continuously behaving in such a way. And when someone on the team, you drop someone in new or even someone who's been there for a while, when they behave in a way that is not consistent with the culture, other people call them out. Mm -hmm. And like, that's a real thing that has some value. And that is the reason why I think that it does not work in football because I don't think there is a player who is so good. Like maybe it works in basketball because LeBron is that good. You mm-hmm. drop LeBron on a poop culture team, they're going to go to the NBA finals, <laughs> no matter what you're surrounded with. You drop uh, Trevor Lawrence or Andrew Luck or Peyton Manning or uh, Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes. Like it doesn't matter. You drop one quarterback on a team mm-hmm if the players aren't bought in, if they, they do not have a, a real winning culture, then you're not, you might catch lightning in a bottle, have a good season here, a good season there, but you will not build the type of organization that can sustain winning and be competitive. Mm-hmm. I mean, long I'll answer. Say, sorry. No, it's fine. I'll say two things. Number one, I like the low key brag that you had the nicest house amongst Ravens defensive backs, which is why you guys were reading there. <laughs> No, I, um, that's just because Ed didn't spend his money, and um, uh, and I was from Baltimore, so I was comfortable with actually buying a nice house in the area. So Ed, Ed could have obviously had a much bigger house than me, and so many other players probably could have too. But no one wanted to be in Baltimore in the offseason except for me. 
Well, that's number one. Number two, the team I want to bring up here, I agree with you. I, I don't think tanking is the right strategy. I think that um, asking players to put their bodies on the line when it's one thing like for a bad team, another thing to do it on a team that just is not even trying to win. That is actively saying we would rather lose. I think that's hard to do. But Can the I say exam- one more thing, please, about tanking? No, you're not allowed to say another thing. Okay, okay. fine, fine, fine. Okay. Go, ahead. go ahead. No, no, no. I, I, you know, since you asked nicely, please go ahead. The bodies on the line thing, like I agree with and I understand, but that's not. So I, I went through why I think tanking doesn't work. Mm-hmm. But why I hate tanking is because making it to the NFL is very difficult. Mm-hmm. And it is a gamble. So like you make so many choices from the time you're eight to the time that you're 22 and you're in the NFL and you make those choices and those choices are closing off other opportunities in your life. And it makes this a high stakes situation that you are putting your future and your family's future on how well you can perform in the NFL and you can make it to the NFL because you, you've missed out on so many other opportunities and maybe those opportunities weren't there. But the reason why I hate tanking is because Essentially, it is people who own a franchise or who are general managers of a franchise who are stable and mm-hmm. and financially um, secure situations who are squandering the players one opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that infuriates me because these players have made it to this place and they're like, all right, now all I got to do is ball. All I got to do is do my thing and I'm going to be able to change my family's life financially. And, and not even the money part, I'll be able to fulfill my dream. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the NFL and I do believe that it is an obligation of an employer to try to put employees in the best situation to succeed. If you are setting up your employees to fail, especially in such a high stakes situation like that to me is what led me to a, a rant that Dolphins fans haven't let me forget. Like that to me is unethical. And, and, and the same could be said about the partnership between the owners and the other owners, like the teams, like, if you're a franchisee and you own a McDonald's and you like purposely have a terrible McDonald's, but all the other McDonald's got to send you money. Like to me, that is also unethical. So it really bothers me. Fortunately, the dolphins were not tanking and they were building uh, what seems to be one of the better cultures in football right now. I like that idea. The tanking McDonald's. Just, <laughs> just I mean, the first franchise that came to my mind. I just, I just, I, there's a lot of, a lot of comedy to be mined from that idea, but we don't have the time. We got to talk about the Dolphins because that's what I wanted to right. get to. The other thing I was going to get to was the Miami Dolphins, where I don't know if anybody else remembers this. We were having this exact conversation about the Dolphins rushing eight and dropping three last year. They just blew the coverage behind it and they gave up a long touchdown. And we actually had people on TV, don't want to name names. I don't think it was you saying the Dolphins no, were actively me. trying to blow the game, continuing to tank. They think the record was still pretty bad at that point. I think they were still winless at that point. Um, just to get the first overall pick. And they were actively blowing coverages behind it. Of course, they weren't doing that. They they blew a coverage because, as Hanlon's razor says, never attribute... How, how does the razor go again? I'm trying to think of the exact way it's phrased. Never uh, attribute to incompetence. Hanlon, yeah. Oh, I thought it was Occam's razor. I didn't that's, know Hamlin had a razor too. That's two. There's there's different razors. Different people had razors oh, back in the day. You're so smart. Hamlin's razor never attribute to malice. What you can better attribute to incompetence. Dolphins were not trying to lose. They just happened to not be very good, and so they blew a coverage because that's what happens when you rush eight men. Sometimes you blow the coverage behind it. So 
I, number one, don't understand why nobody else is saying, hey, we did this with the Dolphins last year. It looks dumb in hindsight. Let's not talk about that again. Let's not pretend that they're tanking again because they blew a coverage behind an eight-man blitz. But number two, to your point, the Dolphins certainly seemed in the moment that they were tanking last year. And I think with hindsight, we would say maybe they were tanking. Maybe, maybe the maybe ownership was tanking, maybe the GM was tanking, but the coaching staff and the players weren't tanking. And we're seeing a year later that even though it's not the strategy I would have gone for, it seems to have worked out pretty well for them. If KJ Hamlin has a razor, does Jerry Judy also have a razor? Jerry long, Judy, long wait for bad days. Jerry jokes. Judy, if he gets to 1,200 yards, gets a Gillette deal. <laughs> okay, thank you for making my joke worthwhile. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that, yeah, you're right. So I, I have been less boisterous about the Jets tank. One, because it was not nearly as obvious as what I appear, would appear to me to be the Dolphins tank. But I also think that it's probably pretty hard to tank and football because of the intensity of the games and the the stakes of the games because there's so few games and the careers are so short i imagine that creates an incentive that's different in football than it is in basketball and baseball where there are so many games and the careers seem to be more stable for the players who actually make it to the professional ranks uh and yeah and it, it seems like the partnership between a basketball coach, and this is just like my feeling, the partnership between a basketball coach and the, the team owner, like it feels more connected, Mm -hmm. less, more like partners and less like employees where it feels very clear that nothing bigger than an NFL franchise, no player, no coach, no GM. It feels like they all work for the franchise. I don't know if I'm making much sense, but in basketball, it feels like the teams are so small in comparison to the stars and the players that it feels like the power structure is very different Mm -hmm. depending on organization, where if you have a star, everyone works for that star, it feels like. If you have a great coach, everyone works for that coach. It's not the same as football. It doesn't feel like it, at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I guess just like, you know, do you look back and say, oh, they were tanking and then they had they built a strong enough culture with their coaching staff that they weren't actually tanking? Or do you think that, you know, they just have they're just saying now because they were successful, oh, we weren't tanking last year. That was just a just, right. you know, what it seemed like. Do you think it's well, they, I mean it's it's undeniable that they were stockpiling draft picks. Sure. Like that's something that they were doing. And in order to do that, you have to get rid of some of your more established talent. So I guess maybe there there should be a different word, like rebuilding, because it, it's clear that because tanking, the idea of tanking is that you're intentionally losing. So if you walked into any team at any level, you're not going to see on the on the dry erase board before the game, keys to the game, let's lose. So like no one's intentionally losing, even the NBA teams who we think are tanking. I suspect that the coaches are still putting together a game plan and the players are still playing as hard as, as hard as they can because mm-hmm. they want to look good and they want to play well. So like tanking is something that happens at an institutional level anyway, mm-hmm. if that's the word we're going to use. And there's no denying that the Dolphins were, were cleaning house talent-wise, it felt like, and trying to get only young talent, only draft picks. So the same thing feels like it's happening with the Jets. Right when they when they 
tra- trade away Jamal Adams beginning of the season, which I thought was a good trade at the time for, for the Jets. It felt like it was sending a, the wrong message to the team, but it was a good trade at the time. Mm-hmm. I think it was a good trade. It reminds me a lot of the. It reminds me a lot of the Fitzpatrick trade for um, when they traded away Fitzpatrick from Miami to uh, to the Steelers, and mm-hmm. I remember thinking at that time that that's the difference between those two organizations is the Steelers who have an established culture. Like to me, trading for Fitzpatrick in that situation is part of the reason why they went eight and eight last year, not only because he showed up and got a bunch of interceptions. Many of them were tip balls and, and lucky interceptions that anybody could have gotten, but that value is there, but also it sent a message to your team. Everyone else is like, Oh, you guys are going to suck this year. You're going to get a high draft pick replace Ben Roethlisberger. They're like, no, that's not what the Steelers do. That's not what we do. We trade to try to win now. And that's a message. Those are actions that speak louder than any words that anyone can say. What the Steelers do is lose at 5 p.m. on Monday for the Washington football team. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I mean, the culture can't prepare you for uh, having a season that's been turned on its head for them through no fault of their own because mm-hmm. they are responsible because they've built a strong culture. That, that, there you go. You're saying, so you're saying the Ravens have not built a strong culture uh, in con- comparison? Mm, no, n- not, not the city of Baltimore. I don't blame the Ravens for their outbreak. I blame... Uh, the city of Baltimore for for the outbreak. That's fair. I I I mean I, it's, it's a go ahead. Sorry. No, no, you go ahead. No, no. I think that it's it's just an interesting dynamic that we're in now. So many fans uh, talk about their team and use we and and that sort of stuff. But this year, it actually feels real. Where like the way that you behave in your city as it pertains to the coronavirus actually could impact your team's chances uh, going forward. It's just an, an interesting thought. Obviously, the whole city of Baltimore is not to blame. Something went wrong. They blame like a, a staffer, right? One and staffer a, strength, went, a strength and conditioning coach. Yeah. Uh, never trust strength and conditioning coaches ever. <laughs> <laughs> it seems very pointed, but I'm, I'm going to move on. I have another thing to ask you about. Speaking of strength and conditioning. You ever met a strength and conditioning coach that you're going to trust? No, of course not. But okay. I'm also I'm, okay. also I'm also not strong in conditions, so that may be uh, related to why I don't trust like the conditioning coaches. Maybe I'm emotionally strong and conditioned. Um, okay, I have a question for you, Dominic Foxworth. Have you already run your Carson Wentz victory lap, or are, is there a time in the future when you're preparing to do it? Uh, Honestly, I, I have not run it. I do not plan on running Carson Wentz victory lap. For some reason, I feel bad. It feels like a lot of people have already run that lap for me. Mm-hmm. So it feels like piling on at this point. It, was, it felt good to be the guy who was like, hey, Carson Wentz isn't that good when everyone else was saying he's great. Now that he is, frankly, terrible, Everyone's saying he's terrible. I don't want to jump on that. Like, it feels bad. I, I found myself rooting for him in a couple of games. Like, come on, Carson, do something. So, yeah, I, I, I've already run the victory lap in text with um, Dan Orlovsky. That's the only person who I really wanted to rub it in their face. And it happened. I'm done with it. It's fine. Now I'm rooting for Carson to have a bounce back. Okay. One well, day. One day. Not this year. Do you? No, not this year. I got to finish. I mean, could you have imagined 
a scenario where he was this bad though? Hell no. <laughs> there was no one who like you you couldn't have honestly imagined that he would be this bad. Um he's the worst quarterback in the NFL. <laughs> All right. yeah, um by but I mean, by by most statistical measures, he has been the worst quarterback in is NFL. He, is and he worse than Sam? Also, Cam? Sam? Not oh, Cam. Come on. What do you think this is? Sam Darnold? Oh, Sam Darnold. Um, uh, Sam Darnold missed a bunch of games. I guess Carson missed some too. I don't know. I mean, they're they're both terrible. <laughs> I didn't expect him to be this bad to be fighting over 30 or 32nd in the league. That's so, and there's a bunch of reasons why I think, but it still falls on him. Like uh, good quarterbacks in bad situations are like average, but <laughs> bad quarterbacks in bad situations are in a battle with Sam Darnold for the worst in the league, which is unfortunate. So do you think this is, like, how much of this do you think is just Carson's innate raw ability, his personality? Like, how much of this do you put on Carson Wentz, and how much of this do you put on what's happened around him? Um, and d- don't say a bit of both. That's a cop-out answer. I'm going to hang up on you if you say a bit of both. It's it's the true answer, but I will be honest matter. with you. <laughs> um, I think it's around him. Mm-hmm. I, I think his greatness was because of what was around him when he was great. And now that greatness is gone. And he's also feels to be a little bit less lucky, which I think is consistent with having a great offensive coordinators, great O-line, great D-line, great um, skill players. Like all that stuff is gone now. And he is the emperor's new clothes, just out there butt naked, all by himself, looking vulnerable. Just taking sacks seven seconds into a play when he should have got rid of the ball uh, go, four seconds earlier. Go from naked, go from naked to sacks. That's a, <laughs> that's a, that is that is heady by you, Bill Barnwell. How'd you do that? I, I I try and uh, attract a highbrow audience here on the Bill Barnwell <laughs> show. I mean, you like I I would say I could not have seen this coming from Carson Wentz. I I don't want to say that I would have predicted this because I did not. But I mean, who could have? I don't know. But is it at least not the tiniest bit interesting that the argument for so many years was that, oh, well, Carson Wentz has nothing around him and Dak Prescott has so much around him. And of course, Dak is hurt. Oh, my gosh. But we have seen the Cowboys. We have seen the things around Dak Prescott fall apart with injuries and poor play in Dallas. That offense is a mess. Ezekiel Elliott (sighs) has been uh, anonymous for the vast majority of this season. Oh, gosh. Oh and I, I hate. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Please no, finish. No, please no, finish ahead. singing my praises. You go ahead. I, I, I hate to. I hate to see Dak get hurt. Obviously, and I don't like watching Carson be terrible. But those two events have done wonders for my reputation as a quarterback evaluator. <laughs> Not that it, it's high to start with, but that was the argument. Everyone's saying Dak is is being propped up by this team because they remembered his rookie year when. Essentially, he was being propped up by sure. everyone around him. He was playing okay, but he was being propped up until that playoff game, that rookie year playoff game where he, in the fourth quarter, I think it was, he mm-hmm. led three scoring drives and mm-hmm. would have beaten the Cowboys if it weren't for Aaron Rodgers' ridiculous sideline pass. Mm-hmm. And then he led a game-winning playoff drive against the Seahawks. And, uh, um, I think it was two seasons later. And he was making – like I, I was able to acknowledge or recognize that 
he wasn't that rookie anymore. He had grown because you would expect that to happen. And the team was more dependent on him than he was on them. And very few people were able to make that recognition. And I also saw quite clearly that if your team can win the Super Bowl, not just win the Super Bowl, can win three playoff games Mm -hmm. in the Super Bowl with the backup quarterback, either the backup quarterback is really good Mm -hmm. or you're being propped up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I think we all agreed back then that Nick Foles wasn't that good. And Carson Wentz was probably being propped up a little bit. And mm-hmm. I just saw it before most people because I'm clairvoyant. <laughs> just have that vision. Now, yeah, I mean, I, I know how to break down film. That's all I'm saying. Uh, film never lies. I always hear that. That's always the smartest thing. I hear. <laughs> film never lies, which is why NFL coaches and general managers always succeed when they watch the film. <laughs> Every free agent signing and every draft pick is always perfect. Um, okay, okay. Well, stats stats never lie either, and that's why no Johnny one's Manziel ever said that. That's quarterback and NFL history. Numbers never lie. No one's ever said numbers never lie. Did Come that on, show? Bill. Did that show get canceled or not get canceled, Dominique? <laughs> well, did NFL Edge get canceled or not get canceled? That got canceled too, and that was all about film. NFL. Matchup is still on. You don't remember that? I don't yeah. remember NFL Edge. Right. No. Uh-huh. Uh, it, was, it was like a um, shaving cream company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember watching it when I was a kid. I, I love that show when um, Merrill Hodge would get on there and give him uh, really bad takes about football. Now he's developed into. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the show is now. Just shots in the media. Um, what I was going to say was, why do you think it is that people anchor on their previously held opinions of these two players? Where with Dak Prescott, it is, oh, he was the guy who would help around him in 2016, I think, or 2017, his rookie year. He had guys around him, and so that's what he's been his entire career. And with Carson Wentz, he was pretty bad as a rookie. He was got off to a hot start, really struggled for a while, and then kind of did better as the end of the season. But then year two, based on a disproportionately effective performance on third down and then the red zone, Carson Wentz had a great season. Why do we anchor on those two things where we're just like, that's our perceptions of those guys going forward, even though we have a lot of data since then saying, even before 2020, that that wasn't what those players were, that Dak Prescott was not the guy from 2016 and Carson Wentz wasn't the guy from 2017. Um, are you asking me to explain human psychology? Like, I, I mean, yeah. I think it's just our, our, our nature. It's, it's, it's the same reason why we're, we have so many other biases, why, why we're racist and sexist and everything else. Like, it's just our human nature to, like, group things, I would think, and to define things and to find absolutes is, like, this guy is always right. This person is always wrong. This person is good. This person is evil. This person is propped up by the system, and this person is making the system. If you get if you want to believe it and then you get enough evidence to convince you that it's true, it's hard to come off of those entrenched beliefs. But mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not a psychologist. Maybe we should get one of them on the show. Next guest, human psychologist. Mm-hmm. Numbers never lie. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, <laughs> psychology lies. Psychology lies. It's a different conversation we're going to have for another day. I, I, I want to ask you this. Two things about Carson Wentz, then we'll finish up. Number one, do you think the Eagles should start Jalen Hurts against the Saints on Sunday? Um, yes. Do you want to expand on that answer? Yes. 
Are you going to? Yes. Carson <laughs> Wentz should sit down, not because he is not the future there, and maybe he's not, but because he is not getting better and he's not learning, he's not mm-hmm. growing on the field. There seems to be nothing, no reason to put him back out there to start a game. Maybe he comes back if Jalen Hurts struggles at some point. But it seemed to me that, and, and other people have suggested that this is some t- something about um, his psyche at this point, but the man could use a rest physically, <laughs> emotionally, psychologically. That man needs a breather. His play has not gotten better as the pressure has heightened. So that is why I would sit him. But I understand the financial consideration for the long term, but that seems like you're falling into the sunk cost fallacy. Like if you overpaid a bad player, that doesn't mean that you keep playing the bad player. And there's nobody, there's no way to argue that he's a good player. You can say all these things around him have failed him, but like, you saw that interception against against the um, Browns where he just threw like a swing pass to nowhere. Mm-hmm. Like these are really terrible decisions. I don't care how much pressure you're under or how bad your skill players are. Like he just is, seems to be overwhelmed at this moment. And it's not necessarily about Jalen Hurts being the answer because I don't think that, I, I didn't think coming out that Jalen Hurts was like an, NFL franchise quarterback. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong, obviously, but that's not my argument. It's not, let's see, it's not um, Jalen Hurts is the answer, but you do need to see what you have in Jalen Hurts. But it is that Carson Wentz can't find any answers mm-hmm. the way that you're doing things now. Now, I agree with you, but what I will say is that this is still a very winnable division. So if you don't think right. Jalen Hurts has NFL potential, are you playing him for a week just to give Carson a break and just to sort of say, hey, you know, satiate your fan base, prove, hey, Jalen Hurts is not a guy we can turn to right now and then bring Carson back with hopefully some rest and a little more confidence? Or is it a thing where you're saying, hey, we're sitting Carson for the rest of the year, no matter how good or bad Jalen Hurts plays, because just there's nothing good coming out of him playing at this point? Yeah, I don't think you commit to sitting Carson the rest of the year necessarily. I don't think it's Jalen's job to lose. Uh, I, I think um, all, those thing, all, those thing, all those things can be true. Find out if Jalen Hurts is a franchise quarterback. Maybe he is. Maybe my evaluation is wrong. I think Jalen Hurts deserves that much. You get a guy in the second round and you give him a starting job. Like you don't, He doesn't deserve just to be throwing out there um, as raw meat so Carson can, can get away from the jackals for a second. Mm-hmm. So I, I agree that should be the case. Give Jalen Hurts your best game plan and, and everything and try to see what he can do in that situation. But I think it does give you the best chance long term if you give Carson a break from this and to think about it and to prepare and to get right. Like, I think there to me, there seems to be no argument on the other side. Mm-hmm. Uh, while I believe my arguments for Jalen Hurts are not super strong. They're stronger than no arguments. What is the argument for playing Carson Wentz for playing Carson Wentz other than the fact that you guaranteed him a lot lot of money, which is not an argument at all. Like he's been really bad all year long. There's no reason to believe that he's gonna get better. Hope. Prayer. <laughs> yes, you can pray with him on the bench. He can pray when he's on the bench. He can't pray when he's on the field. So then in the future, if you're the Eagles, 
how 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 much does the cost matter to you? I mean, if you have already invested in Carson Wentz, it's extremely difficult to move on from him after this year. You could maybe theoretically trade him, but it would be incredibly cost prohibitive and leave you without a quarterback option and basically sink your chances in 2021 probably anyway, unless you are somehow in a position to draft a quarterback at the bottom half of maybe the top 10 or the beginning of the, the, the yeah, I guess the bottom half of the top 10. So the Eagles would be. Do you just stubbornly or not, maybe not stubbornly, maybe just say, Hey, this is a bad year. We're throwing it out the window. We're going to make some changes around Carson. Or do you just put it on Carson and say, Hey, we're going to run this back. We think we have enough talent around you and you have to just be better with a healthier offensive line. And if you're not better than 2022, we're moving on. Yeah, what's the other option? Like, you don't cut Carson, um, and trading him doesn't really help your contract situation. Uh, so you try to improve the team around him and uh, improve the coaching around him, maybe. I, I, like, I don't think that the answer is cutting him and moving on to who knows what or or Jalen Hurts. Like, you've already made this commitment, so... I'm not sure how else you handle this situation. Like, I feel like you are more well-versed in these moves than I am. So, and it's called the Bill Barnwell show. So you are Howie Roseman, man. What do you do? Wow. You pick someone in the NFL I can finally relate to. Howie Roseman. <laughs> what I would do, I would simply go back and not make all those bad signings. I would go back in time and I would say, Alshon Jeffrey, you are a good player. I'm not going to sign you to a massive deal and then restructure it. I would not sign Lane Johnson to a four-year contract extension that starts in 2025. I would not do those things. I would, um, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I think you don't really have a choice, right? Like you're stuck with Carson right. for the next year. You evaluated him up to this point as a number one franchise quarterback they traded up to grab him he was newly the mvp in 2017 like that's not even if you're saying that's not what i would expect from carson wentz that's at least in the range of outcomes you know at least that is a possibility that Carson right. has that ceiling which we don't know that for every player we don't know every player you know i don't think it would be a good example like sam darnold you might some team might try and buy low on sam darnold sam darnold might be a good a good football player uh you know removed from adam gase but we don't know he has that in his range of possibilities in VP caliber season. So I think you have to fundamentally take a step backwards and say, okay, well, we also know that Carson Wentz has this really awful season in his range of possibilities. So I think you, I don't know if you fire Doug Peterson. I don't know if you remove play calling duties, but I think you have to seriously consider making a coaching change and whether you have the right coach for Carson Wentz, because it's a lot easier to fire Doug Peterson than it is to fire Carson Wentz. I think you have to reevaluate a lot of your choices at receiver, what Carson Wentz works with. I think that they have added receiver after receiver. I mean, Golden Tate, uh, they drafted Dallas Goddard. They, they signed Deshaun Jackson. They just signed Austin Jeffrey. They drafted Jalen Rieger. Like last year, they went into the offseason saying, hey, we have to add speed. And they added a bunch of speed, and it hasn't helped. Carson can't hit those throws. He doesn't have the time to, and he hasn't been an effective deep passer when he has given it a shot. So, you know, maybe you have to reconsider. He's a tight end guy, right? Wasn't, wasn't that the thing? Like, he he uh, he really loved Ertz yes. back when Foles seemed to like um, Jeffrey a little more. I remember that being, like, a, a bit of a, a storyline coming out of – 
yeah, <laughs> storyline coming out of um, Billy. Yeah, but you assume Zach Ertz is leaving after the year. He has one year left in his contract. He's probably going to get cut. Um, I, I think you have to make changes to what your offense be. You can't sit here and expect Lane Johnson, for example, or Deshaun Jackson to be healthy because there's no reason to think they are, are going to be. They haven't been healthy for years for the entire 16-game season. So I think right. even if you have the urge to spend money on receivers, I think you're probably better off you know, moving on from some star players using the cap space you've carved out, which might not be much to go after depth, especially in a market where we know because of the cap being reduced that there's going to be a lot of veterans who get cut and get squeezed and have to take smaller salaries. Um, I think that's the approach you have to take. And I think the other thing, which is going to be frustrating to say, but it's going to happen. It would not shock me if this team traded for Nick Foles, which I, I, I can't say I endorse. I know that it's frustrating. I know that it's like like the, the dumbest possible thing. But like if the Bears, if the Bears clean house, which seems entirely possible given how they're playing, I think it's gonna happen. And I think it's gonna be really annoying, yeah. but it's gonna happen. <laughs> I mean, I guess that that might give you like some emotional boost. I don't oh. think that it gives you a quality of play boost. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you as well. Do you buy the idea that Carson Wentz felt threatened by the Eagles taking Jalen Hurts in the second round and that's caused his play to decline? No. No. I, I don't. I, I, I've heard it. I don't buy it. I don't think – I'm not like crazy football guy who doesn't believe that your emotions can impact your play or like you're soft if – if words hurt your feelings, like I understand that anybody who's saying that is either a sociopath or a liar. Like the stuff matters. You can have your feelings hurt and it can impact you. However, I do think that if you've risen to the level of starting quarterback in the NFL and maybe because Carson took a, a, an unusual path at, at a small school, maybe he hasn't been exposed to these levels of pressure. But I tend to think that if drafting somebody is at your position, if that's strong enough to to uh, turn you into a bad football player, then mm-hmm. then you're prob- you don't, probably don't have the mental makeup necessary to be a franchise quarterback. And I mean, what more confidence do you need? Because like the argument is they didn't show confidence in him and that that hurt him. But it's hard to make that argument considering they signed him to a record setting deal when they signed him. Like mm-hmm. how much more confidence do you need? Uh, so I don't know. I find it unlikely that the reason why he's suddenly become a bad quarterback is because they brought in another quarterback who I don't think is even that good. Now I will say in that playoff game that I watched the other day, Champ Bailey allowed a long touchdown pass in that game. Do you think he felt threatened that superstar rookie Dominique Foxworth <laughs> was going to take over his role as the shutdown corner of the Denver Broncos? So we drafted three corners. The first pick, the first um, three picks that the Broncos had uh, that season was for corners because they had been getting beat up by the Peyton Manning. Colts. So he drafted 
didn't have first round pick. They drafted a second round corner and two third round corners. I was one of the third round corners. So uh, Champ, I'm sure, was not threatened because they just signed him to a long deal and traded Clinton Portis uh, for him. But it was very clear that one of us was going to play opposite Champ. So the other guys were definitely very threatened. Pretty sure Champ had nothing to worry about. Champ had the that season, I think he had eight interceptions and – I think he was targeted like 20 times, maybe. It was the most insane thing I'd ever seen. Well, one of the most sane things I've ever seen or heard is Dominique Foxworth giving logical, sound responses to things here on the Big <laughs> Show. If people want to hear more reasonable decisions, oh, reasonable goodness. thoughts from Dominique Foxworth, where can they do that? I don't know. Not on TV. Reasonable thoughts don't don't get you that far on TV. So if you want to hear me be unreasonable, turn to ESPN in the mornings on Wednesday and Thursdays. If you want reasonable thoughts, though, I have a show on The Undefeated that you can watch, too, where I put my more reasonable thoughts. Well, tomorrow, tomorrow is Wednesday. Are you how many how many 1970s hip hop songs are you going to reference uh, tomorrow? Um, I'm set the bar pretty high. Let's see. I, I might, I mean, as long as you don't, you don't, uh, limit me to just the seventies. Like I, I can come through with 10 to 12. That's the goal. Me and RC gonna fill up your airways with references that nobody under 40 can understand. Rapper's delight. What a time to be hey, alive. Delight. It's a whack song. It's a terrible song. It's so cool. Rapper's you delight know how is I- whack. You know how I heard about Rapper's Delight? How? The Red Man cover from like 1997. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. I'm proud of you because it is a trash song and no one <laughs> should have heard about it except for through covers of, of contemporary artists. Well, I guess yep. Red Man is no longer contemporary. Contemporary <laughs> at the time. <laughs> Red <Man laughs> Noble. Red Man has not, not been contemporary for 20 years. 15 years underrated 15 underrated years. actor how high yeah, how, how high, funny how, high how high was when like 2002 uh probably it was funny as hell though okay 15 years you're good all right dominic foxworth you're done here thank you we're we not going to talk about our book club you don't want people in on that no it's off the, uh, the book club is off the air private discussion <laughs> all right and i don't have the book so i can't say anything I uh, know. I just meant to talk about how we have a book club because no. we're like cool nerds. Gotta tease that. We gotta, gotta save that for the future. When we don't have stuff to talk about. We'll talk Two about man book club. club. Two man book club. I like it. We'll save it for the off season. No one else is invited. <laughs> All right, buddy. Well, good talk. Um, let me know when you get your book and then we will talk again. I will talk to you next week. Bye, bud. All right. We'll get back to our show up here in a moment. But first. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, to my, I would say, interview less, more just casual conversation with my friend Dominique Foxworth. Dominique does excellent work for ESPN. Of course, check out Get Up on Wednesday. Um, the other morning shows, you know, though, just turn on ESPN at like 7 a.m. and then leave it on until about noon. You'll see plenty of Dominique then. You can also check out Dominique's feature on Tyron Matthew, which was excellent for the undefeated. And you can listen to the show. But we have more audio coming next week. I think we'll be talking more about the NFL. A few weeks to go with the regular season. Hope you guys are enjoying things, staying healthy, happy, 